Well, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we're going to look at the first 12 verses. Now, we've seen in this book so far how Paul has rejoiced at the work God has done in preserving the church of Thessalonica. He had been able to minister to them only the briefest time. He and Silas, before enemies had risen in the city and had convinced the church that they needed to leave, that their lives might be preserved, that the gospel might continue going forth elsewhere. And shortly after they left, they sent Timothy back. He ministered to them for a time. We don't know how long. But this letter is written in response to Timothy's return to Paul and Silas, bringing news concerning the church in Thessalonica, news that was deeply encouraging. God has sustained them. God has strengthened them. God has been maturing them. And Paul has celebrated that. He's celebrated that. He's reminded them of the authority and and the insight that God has given to him. But now he's going to begin pushing them a little bit. Because God has sustained them. He's strengthened them. But, but they're not yet perfect. None of us are yet perfect. And we still have a task before us to grow in holiness and grace. And so we see in the first 12 verses of First Thessalonians 4 how he begins to do this. How he begins to really urge them and encourage them to stand apart as the people of God. Listen. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. The congregation of God beloved in Christ. There are two ways, broadly speaking, to critique someone who is doing a relatively good job. The hurtful way is to ignore all the stuff that they're doing well and to focus exclusively on what they're doing poorly. You see that sometimes with the parents of children who largely excel, whether in their schoolwork or in their sport. A report card comes home 
absolutely filled with A's, with a small sprinkling of B's or B pluses, and the parent looks at it for a long moment. And then ignoring all of the A's, all of the high marks, focuses on those few B's or B pluses, asking what went wrong, what happened, why, why did this occur? Or you see it with athletes whose parents are athletes who don't pay attention to the goals scored, to the advances made, but focus on the small missteps that have happened. If you're tempted toward that, thinking that, that by means of that focus on the need to improve, you might be able to encourage them to do better. If that's your temptation, let me urge you to resist the temptation. Because at best you will crush that child or that young person's enthusiasm for their school or for their sport or for whatever they're doing. And at worst, you will alienate that child and sow in their heart the seeds for rebellion. A far better way, a far more positive way to critique those who are doing well. You see, criticism, critique is not supposed to be a bad word. It's, it's a means by which we are sharpened and strengthened and led on from good to better. But it must be done in a way that's careful, that doesn't ignore the gains that have been made, the positive that has been done, the, the good. And that, brothers and sisters, that is what we see in our text today. This is a church that is weak, but is healthy. They're weak because they're young, because they're immature. They, they lack training and experience. I mean, they haven't been in Christ all that terribly long. The apostle and and his fellow minister Silas were only there for a brief time. They've been ministered to by Timothy, perhaps by one or two others, but really they haven't received much formal training in the faith. So despite that, the fact that they're doing so well is really astonishing, is really just a wonderful thing that can't be overlooked. And yet, they do need to grow. They do need to increase their Christ-likeness. So Paul, he doesn't want to harm what is healthy. He doesn't want to harm what has been growing well. But he does want to encourage that continued growth, that they might gain the maturity that God has ordained for them. And so this text, we find here Paul instructing the church gently and yet with authority. We do well to study that instruction both because it's the instruction that we need as a church that is on the whole healthy, but yet still in need of growth, and also so that we can learn how to encourage and guide and lead others, our own children and grandchildren, elders, the, the congregation, the, the parish that God has set in your care, parents, your own children. Let us... Consider well how Christ's spokesmen exhort the church to excel in Christ-like living. That's the theme that we find here. Christ's spokesmen exhort the church to excel in Christ-like living. But to really appreciate the message, we need to notice right up front the manner. The manner in which they approach. They come with a, a sort of a two-fold basis. 
Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus. Notice that. They come speaking to their brethren with an urging. With a, the, the word there for urging, it's, it's kind of like when you invite someone, right? That's not an authoritative word. I want to urge you to come to dinner. I want to urge you to enjoy the rest of the Sabbath day. Just just do it. They come as brethren. Not as those lording it over necessarily, but as those who are saved by Christ, speaking to those who are saved by Christ. As sheep speaking among the flock. And yet at the same time, they exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul and Silas, they're not just men. They're also men who have been called and ordained and set over the the church with authority. And so while they urge gently as brothers, they also speak with the authority of Christ in a way that, that should not be ignored. They come in love, urging, but also with authority, commanding. That's instructive for our elders, isn't it? Now, brothers, you can come just with the commanding. And you can speak with the authority of Christ, but never make a dent in the heart of those whom you minister to. Because they don't see your love. We can do that as parents too, right? Do it because I said to do it. But if they don't recognize our love, That's just going to harden their hearts. But on the other hand, we can't come to them merely as friends because they need to hear the authority of Christ, don't they? So we come in love. We come with a degree of gentleness, but we come also with the authority of Christ. That's how, that's the the pattern that is set here. And coming with that twofold approach, they present their overall goal right up front. They call on the church to look at their walk before the Lord in the past, the present, and the future. He says, you received from us how you ought to walk and please God. In other words, the church has already heard this instruction that they're about to hear. Nothing here is new. I remember a former president of Princeton Seminary back when Princeton was a solid school once said in a a graduation address nothing in this school nothing that has been taught in this school is new if we're speaking the truth of Christ we're speaking that which is well known and well grounded in the truth Paul says you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please the Lord and he says you know this is present tense you know What commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ? That implies that they're doing it. In fact, some manuscripts uh, actually include that. You know and are doing. In other words, he's saying, don't just remember what we heard you doing. We see that you're doing it. You've already made a good start. And so now he says, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. What you heard from us, what you've begun doing, we want you to do it all the more. That's what they're calling them to do. They're not saying we need you to do a 180, you're doing everything wrong. No. They're saying you're doing well, but we want you to do even better. You're walking in the Lord, we want you to walk even more faithfully. Isn't that the calling we should be setting before our children? 
you covenant parents. You're doing well. You're learning to obey. You're, you're learning things in school about the world. You're, you're becoming a good friend to your friends. Do it more. Increase, abound more and more in what you have heard and begun to do. This is, this is the mission that Paul and Silas bring to the church. To excel in Christ-like living. That's the mission that we have toward one another. That we might urge and exhort one another to excel in Christ-like living. And that begins, Paul shows us, especially in verses 3 through 8, with guarding their holiness before God. Notice in verse 3 how he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, sanctification is the process of becoming holy. God's will is their becoming holy. Because God's people are holy. That's what Peter taught the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. You are those who are holy. Because what is it, kids? What is it to be holy? It's to be set apart and devoted to God. Think about the, the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. When... The temple, or when the, when the tabernacle was, was consecrated, the altar, all of the, the bowls and the censers and all the, the stuff that was used in, the, in the, the, the worship of God, that was all made holy. Likewise, the priests' clothes and the priests themselves. What that meant was that it was uniquely devoted to God. The Levites couldn't just take one of those, take a few of those bowls home and use them in serving food to guests, right? No, because they were holy. Those bowls were set apart for the service of God. They were not to be used for common purposes anymore. The priests couldn't take their priestly robes and wear them to a, a party, to a gathering of some sort, so as to impress their friends. No, they were holy garments set apart uniquely for the worship of God, for the service of God. Well, now he reminds us, we are holy. We are set apart for the worship of God. We must never forget that. God's will is the sanctification of His people. He's already called us holy, and now He wants us to live as those who are holy, to to become even more openly holy. That means that we must be set apart from what is common. Because what is common in this world is sinful, is defiled, is set against God. And that needs to infect everything. Obviously, it needs to impart a distinct character to our worship. But it should also impart a distinct character to our work, to our parenting, to our friendships, To the way that we celebrate, the way that we grieve, the way that we marry, the way that we parent, the way that we everything needs to be influenced by this calling to be sanctified, this calling to be holy. Now, in the context of the Roman society of 2,000 years ago, defilement was most common and most evident in their sexuality. In that culture, sexual immorality was considered to be a minor indiscretion. Most folks felt it was unreasonable 
to expect a man to be faithful to one woman all his life. And they had really no problem with a number of perversions that God finds to be unacceptable. Some pagan religions even incorporated this kind of stuff into their worship. Christians in that society were confronted on every side by temptations and urgings to this kind of immorality. And so Paul and his friends call on them to avoid, to abstain from porneia. That's the word that's used there. And it's a comprehensive term. It encompasses every type of illicit sexual activity. Their society really wasn't much different than ours, was it? We're bombarded on every side. From the advertisements, to the television shows, to the movies, to the attitudes, to the music. It's everywhere. Urging our children, our young people to go astray from what God created them to do and to be. God gave that that aspect of who we are, that sexuality, as something that is to knit together a husband and a wife. And it's to be a rich blessing that helps us to demonstrate the absolute unity between Christ and His church. And when we use it in that context, it is an immense blessing. But when misused, when misused, it tears us away from God and it utterly annihilates the image of Christ that we're called to bear. It brings forth not our selflessness toward our spouse, but instead our selfishness, putting our desires, our wants, our craving ahead of everyone else. And that's why Paul warns so strongly against it to the Thessalonian church and to us. So he says in verse 4 that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Notice, this is the calling for the whole church, including every member in it. Each one of you. Because the temptation confronts everyone. Young and old, male and female. You each one must learn to possess, learn to control your own vessel. That's speaking of the body. The physical self. Of course... In that culture, many people regarded the body, regarded the flesh as being relatively unimportant. They believed that what was done in the body was less important than what was done in the mind or in the heart. That's what really counted. The body, well, that was sort of immaterial to them. At the end of the day, the body was just seen as a prison for the spirit. But God's people need to reject that view. The body is important. After all, in this life, it's inseparable from the soul. And more than that, the body is a vessel of the Holy Spirit for God's people. So Paul tells us, you must learn to control this vessel that is your body appropriately. Control it in holiness. Not defiling it with immoral acts that bring God's judgment. Not disregarding it as though this body God has given you is not important. You need instead to strive for holiness. To strive to honor God with this vessel. Regarding your bodies as special, as truly set apart. Treating this body as the tent in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Imagine that. As the building in which the Holy Spirit is present. That means you must not be controlled, says Paul, in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. 
That would be the polar opposite of their calling. Gentiles refers to those who have rejected what God has revealed of Himself to them. They are the ones who choose to serve the created things rather than the Creator who's revealed through the creation. They trade the glory of God for the faded glory of this fallen world. They embrace, eagerly embrace, defilement. And that's precisely what the people of God must never do. To embrace defilement, to embrace sin, identifies us with those who hate God. And it rejects all that Christ came to do. He came to save us from that. He came to deliver us from that brokenness, that ugliness. And so our calling is to embrace what defines Him, not what defines the Gentiles. To embrace holiness, to embrace righteousness, to put off the passions of the flesh. We're surrounded by these defilements of the world, but we must reject them, guarding our holiness before God. That's a calling for each one of us. Each one of us must look at, at what we do. What, what entertainment am I going to devote myself to? Spend my time on? Is it holy? Does it glorify God in the things that are said, in the attitudes that are conveyed, in the worldview that is encompassed? How about... The way I speak, does it show that I'm one of God's holy ones? Or do I use the common and vulgar language of the people who don't know the Lord? How about the clothing that I wear? Does it show respect for this vessel that God has given to me? Or does it seek to flaunt it and show it off as a means of leading others astray? How about the thoughts that I cultivate? Do I allow my mind to, to dwell upon and focus on all the things that I want or all the experiences that I want to experience or the things I want to get for myself? Or do I try to focus on how I can help others, how I can love others, how I can glorify God, how I can speak of Him? In every aspect of life, we're called to, to guard our holiness by evaluating where we're, where we're putting our hope, our trust. Our emphasis. And then in verse 6, he calls us to expand that to the way we treat our neighbor. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. You see, when I defile myself with sin, when I give myself over to the lusts of the flesh, I necessarily harm my neighbor. My lust harms my neighbor by encouraging him or her to commit immorality. Pornography harms my neighbor by creating a market for exploitation. Immorality before marriage harms the future spouse of my neighbor, stealing a privilege that should be exclusively his or hers. Now, of course, my neighbor might never learn of my sin, might never learn that I was the one who led them astray or that I was the one who created this market for their exploitation. But even if they never know or, or don't even care, God knows. And He is the avenger of all such, says the Apostle. Whether we commit our sin alone or with others, whether we commit it in the depth of darkness or in the open light of day, if we feel bad about it or if we convince ourselves that God's okay with it, God sees, God knows, and He will judge those who embrace that defilement. Brothers and sisters, God has called you to holiness. 
objectively, as members of the covenant, God has set you apart from those who don't know Him. And He wants you to guard that as the richest treasure you've been given. It is a treasure. It's a treasure to know the Lord. It's a treasure to be called by His name. And we need to guard that as the most precious thing we've been given. For God did not call you to uncleanness, but in holiness. And therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. We cannot reject this without rejecting what God has done for us, what God has said for us. How ugly that would be. But on the other hand, notice that right there he reminds us, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. You see, we can't guard our holiness, and we won't guard our holiness on our own. We're too weak. We're too susceptible to temptation. We're too influenced by the people around us. But you know what? The Holy Spirit dwells within this vessel you've been given. And He empowers you to desire what you wouldn't normally desire. To triumph over the sins that would otherwise be stronger than you. To speak in ways you wouldn't normally speak. To love, to forgive, to reject the sins that pile up against you. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by your strength, not by your striving, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are able to guard the holiness that God has given you. And therefore it is by that power that we stand. Brothers and sisters, hear this. This is our calling. It's a hard lesson that we need to stand against that which comes so easy. And and Satan whispers in our ear, if it feels so good, it can't be wrong. If it comes this natural, if it's the way I feel, I can't deny it. But that's a lie. That Satan seeking to defile that which God has declared to be holy. And God has given you His Holy Spirit so that you might preserve what He has made holy. That's hard. As children, as young people, that's really hard. It doesn't get easier as you become adults. You just get better at hiding it. But God has given you the strength of His Holy Spirit to stand firm, to reject that which would defile you, to embrace that which is holy. We we need to do that, and we need to do that for the sake of God's glory. He's the one who called us holy. He's the one who claimed us for His own. Now let us stand firm in the holiness which He has declared of us, which He has bestowed upon us. And we do it for a purpose. It's obviously, first of all, for God's glory, but there's another reason. And that's what we see in the last part of our text here. He calls us to act in a way that not only honors God with the the holiness that He has given to us, but also that gains a hearing before men. And that's our final point. First, of course, again, he pauses to give praise. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. What a beautiful demonstration of that principle, huh? Don't overlook the good that has been done by the one you're critiquing. 
the one you're guiding and leading. <clears throat> this is a parent saying, you have done so well in math and in science and in phys ed and in all of these stuff. Look at all the A's. This is beautiful. I'm so proud of all the work you've done. Now about that B. You know, you kind of slid down there a little bit. What happened? I mean, you, you have done so well in all of this. Now, what happened here? How encouraging that is for the church to hear. God Himself has taught you to love one another. And you're doing it. We're seeing it. We're hearing from other churches how loving this church is. They, they stop in Thessalonica as strangers and the church welcomes them into their home. There are people in need who show up in your city and you're meeting those needs even though they're not believers. Someone comes to, to you with, with a messed up life filled with heartache and you embrace them. Christians are called to show love and this church in Thessalonica, they're doing it. What a blessing. Can God say that of us? Brothers and sisters, I think He can and does. I know this church. It's been such a blessing to get to know you as brothers and sisters in the Lord over the last eight years. And I've seen your love. The way when there is a need, when there's someone struggling, other folks show up. They show up with food. Oh, we show love with food, don't we? They show up with food. They show up with an embrace. They show up with a, a willing ear and a dry shoulder. You're already showing the love that you're called to show. People walk in our door. They're greeted normally. They're greeted. They're loved. They're embraced. They're introduced. You're already doing what God calls you to do. But, but says the Lord, you cannot rest on the path past. True faith is not something we show once and then we're done. It renews itself daily. Each morning, our faith renews its trust in Christ. Each night, it lies down in the comfort of belonging, body and soul, and life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. True faith professes itself each day anew. And likewise, the fruit of true faith, which is above all else, love. Every morning we're called to put off the old man of hatred and self-love. And every day we take up that calling to love others and to love Christ above all. So even though they've shown brotherly love in the past, he says they must increase more and more. The love of Christ needs to shine through them continually. His passion for seeking the good of others must become their passion. His zeal for advancing others must live daily in them. And along with that love, that external Christ-likeness, they must become internally Christ-like. Look at verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Three things quietness. This is the, the same word that's used to describe the rest to which we're called on the Sabbath day. In other words, Christians are called to rest. They're called to cease from their striving and their doing and their pursuing. They need to be zealous, not in the pursuit of laziness. That's not what he's saying. But in the pursuit of contentedness. 
Look at the society in which you live. It is always about climbing the ladder, getting the bigger house, improving your standing in society, gaining all of the toys, looking better than the neighbors. More, more, more. How many politicians have won their seat, have gained their office by the promise that they're going to put more money in your paycheck, let you get that boat that you've always wanted, allow you to get a bigger house, lower your interest rates, increase your salary. That's what people want. But he says, no, you be content. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard, that we shouldn't be thankful for the the salary we receive, but it means that isn't what should motivate us. We should be quiet. We should be content. Because that shows that we're trusting in the Lord. That we know that everything we've received has come from His hand. And that nothing that we need will He withhold. First, quietness. And then second, that they mind their own business. Business here speaks not just to their profession. It speaks in a comprehensive sense. That they're to mind their own affairs. This is a calling to work diligently on that which God has given them to do. And to not focus on the things God has given their neighbor to do. Not be busybodies. Focus on the things God has entrusted to you. And work with your own hands, third. Work with your own hands. You see, hands that are busy with that which is productive are hands that don't have time for sin. You remember the old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. They need to work to avoid temptation but also in order to serve. God has given the work that we're called to do, whether, whether our work is as a governor or as a, or as a groundskeeper. And so all that we do, we can do for the sake of Christ and in His name. And we're called to do that. We're called that we might provide for ourselves and for our family. That's how God normally provides for us, by the work that He calls us to do but also so that we might provide for those who are in need. Think of Ephesians 4, where it talks about how the thief must no longer steal, but now he must work with his hands that he might give to others. Now, all of these are the personal commands Paul gives in this second half of our text. And why does he do that? Why these commands to to embrace quietness or contentedness, to mind our own business and to work with our hands. Well, brothers and sisters, as we do this, and as we seek to love our neighbor, we gain a hearing for Christ. Look at the start of verse 12. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside. That word, that. That's an inference word. Do these things so that, right? Abound more and more in love. Aspire to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. So that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. Those who are outside are the Gentiles, are the unbelievers, are those who are living in rebellion against God. And he's saying that you need to live in this way that demonstrates your holiness, that reveals the character of Christ for the sake of those outside. We're going to talk about this some tonight when we talk about the prayer to hallow God's name. And what we're going to see is that the church is here, here on earth, here not yet in heaven, in large part. 
for the sake of the world. For the sake of the unbeliever. For the sake of those who don't yet know Christ. We are a light shining in the darkness. A city up on a hill. We're made to reveal Christ to those who don't yet know Him. And when we live in this way, they'll see that you're different. When you show love to those around you, not self-love, not self-interest, when you show love that is obviously not in your self-interest, you go out of your way to stop and help a woman change a tire alongside the road, even though you don't know her. You've got places to be. When you go to your neighbor who's going through a hard time, who just got laid off, and you bring over some food. When you reach out to that kid in your neighborhood who seems to be going astray, and you start giving him chores around the house and talking with him and just loving him, When somebody offends you and you say, you know what, I forgive you and I love you. And then you actually show it by treating them that way. When we do that kind of stuff and we never partake in gossip and we're diligent in the work of our own hands and we're demonstrating love with our family, when we're doing that kind of stuff, brothers and sisters, we stand out and they want to know. What makes these folks different? Either because they can't stand us, because they can't stand Christ, or because they want what we've been given. And we gain a hearing. What what we're showing them is the antithesis. how, How God, when He makes His people holy, and when He begins imparting that holiness to them, they stand out as being utterly and completely different from what they once were and from what comes natural. And seeing that antithesis, people will want to know more. That's what the church in Thessalonica was was to aim for. And brothers and sisters, that's what we are called to embrace as well. We need to seek to excel in Christ-like living. Not because we've been terribly unfaithful. In many ways, brothers and sisters, this church has been blessed with faithfulness. Rarely do our elders have to exercise discipline. Not because there's no sin among us, but because you're willing to repent. And when there's work to be done, there's many a volunteer. Your generosity is evident. Your love for each other is evident. You're doing what you're called to do. Praise the Lord. But now, abound more and more in that which you've begun to do. More and more, guard the holiness that God has bestowed upon you. More and more, seek to gain a hearing for Him among the unbelievers around you. More every day, let us live out our profession of Christ because as we do this my friends we will bring life to our neighbor and we will bring glory to God and there is no greater purpose for us on this earth may God cause us to excel in Christ like living as we go forward amen let us pray O Lord our heavenly father you are so good and so gracious to us We ask that you who have declared us to be holy would enable us to guard the holiness that you have given us and to grow in the sanctification to which we are called. And we pray, Lord, that you would would teach us to live in such a way through our love, through our contentedness, through our work and our diligence 
that we might gain a hearing for Christ in those among whom we've been set. Father, we ask this all in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.